Welcome to another edition of Perception Reception. My guest this week is Mike Wagner, Chief of National Events Planning for the Joint Task Force National Capital Region in Military District of Washington, D.C. Try saying that after you've had a drink or two. His resume includes participating in 12, that's right, 12 presidential inaugurals, including his first as a tuba-playing high schooler at Richard Nixon's second inaugural in 1973. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. You know, I, just in prepping for this, Mike, I, I uh, Googled MDW, uh, and the first uh, half dozen items that came popping up uh, didn't relate to what you do, but to Midway, Chicago's Midway Airport designated MDW. And uh, I guess the point is that very few Americans really know who or what MDW is, you know, what it does, even though you guys are responsible for a really a broad range of iconic historic assignments and events as part of your mission. So maybe a good starting place is to tell everybody a little bit about MDW and JFHQ, NCR, what they are and, and what, what, what you do. Certainly. Um, the Military District of Washington, which is MDW, um, is a um, is an army organization that's been around for about well, about since the end of the Second World War, uh, that is uh, responsible uh, in the Washington D.C. area for joint and army ceremonies. Uh, certainly, um, each of the other services has a, a comparable organization uh, that takes care of their service ceremonies, but the uh, the things that need to be done that are joint in nature, use forces from all the various services, are the responsibility of Army as the senior service and as a result, the responsibility of the Military District of Washington. Um, I think most Americans, though they might not know our name, would recognize some of the things that we do. Um, among our responsibilities are um, Army funerals in Arlington National Cemetery the uh, guard at the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, large number of, um, of ceremonies, White House arrivals, the ceremonial aspects of, of White House arrivals for foreign heads of state, heads of government, those kinds of things, similar support for the State Department, for Army, and joint uh, Department of Defense leadership. So that's a lot of our day-to-day -day responsibility. And the uh, MDW, the Military District of Washington, has those responsibilities and has had those basically under that ser senior service executive agency, they call it, uh, for many, many years. The Joint Task Force National Capital Region or Joint Force Headquarters National Capital Region is a more recent creation. Um, after 9-11, one of the things that, uh, that people realized here in the D.C. area is that though there were a lot of military organizations in the city um, and around the city, there was no single organization that had responsibility for coordinating any kind of military response in the city in an instant. And so as uh, United States Northern Command was established in Colorado Springs, responsible for homeland defense, uh, for the entire continental United States, 
here in the D.C. area, Joint Task Force National Capital Region or the Joint Force Headquarters was established in uh, 2003 uh, to, to fill that role. And basically, they said, well, there's already this organization here called MDW. And what we're going to do is we're going to add a few additional positions. So if you look around the headquarters, you do see some, some Naval officers, you do see some Air Force officers and some Marines, a very few Coast Guardsmen. But um, they said, we're going to make this an economy of force organization. We're basically going to have the, uh, the Army two-star who is in charge of MDW also be in charge of this joint force headquarters. So we're, we're a cheap date in that way. Um, <laughs> a, um, an organization that, uh, that is, stands on the shoulders, if you will, of the, the Army Corps component as well as uh, some partners uh, from across the city. Um, and the purpose of that, of that larger organization really supported by the Naval District of Washington, the Air Force District of Washington, uh, Marine Corps National Capital Region, and the Coast Guard sector that is Maryland and DC area. Um, supported by those organizations, as we look at larger events, as we look at events like a presidential inauguration, or a, uh, a summit conference, if one were to be held here in the, in the national capital region. Uh, those events have significant military security components as well as ceremonial components. And what the Joint Force Headquarters does, what the, the established as a joint task force when the, it actually comes time for us uh, to do our job is um, is unify all those various military support components under one hat, under one commander, um, who currently is Major General Omar Jones, uh, an Army two-star. You know, looking at MDW and the inaugural, so uh, the inaugural is referred to as a national special security event. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what constitutes a national special security event uh, what the services are that NBW provides. And, you know, we just had a presidential inaugural, so maybe talk a little bit about uh, what you all did for the Biden-Harris uh, inaugural as, as an example and how far things have come since you were uh, playing that tuba back in uh, 1973. Fair enough. So a national special security event is a designation um, the Department of Homeland Security has a, a way in which they rate various large-scale events. Some of those are, are the well-known marathons. Some of those are events like the Super Bowl, uh, the Basketball Final Four. Some of those are things like the presidential inauguration. And they rate those on a scale that determines the level of support that they receive from, uh, from federal entities. Uh, the National Special Security event is the, the highest level uh, of that, uh, that designation. Um, it can be used for, for a, a one-off event, for a single event. Um, Nuclear Security Summit here in Washington, D.C. Uh, several years ago was, uh, was designated the National Special Security event. Uh, it was just a one-of-a-kind. But there, there are also a number of recurring events, like the State of the Union address, um, the presidential inauguration, the part of state funerals that occur here in the national capital region 
that are pre-designated by the, uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security to have that designation. And what it means basically is that a federal agency, in most cases, Secret Service, is designated as the overall lead and coordinator for federal, state, and local support. There is an executive steering committee uh, that involves all those entities. There are a vast number of subcommittees that coordinate uh, specific aspects of those events. Um, so for an event like the, uh, like the presidential inauguration here in D.C., again, Secret Service is the primary agency, but Capitol Police as a primary agency for protection of the Congress, FEMA for response to any kind of incident, FBI for crisis management, depending on the, the type of, of an incident that might occur. Um, so there's shared responsibilities, but all those people have a, a seat at the table. The National Guard does, DOD does, in, mostly in, in the person of JTFNCR. General Services Administration, uh, National Park Service, Park Police, all the law enforcement partners in the D.C. area have, uh, have roles in that, that NSSC construct. And the concept really is, is that it creates a forum uh, for open communication and collaboration and, and problem solving. DOD's role in that is always one of support. And you also have ceremonial responsibilities as well at these events, correct? We do. And that, that's really the, the largest, that's the way the public sees us. We have the responsibility for um, for providing bands, honor guards, military cordons, color guards, uh, military musical elements. Some of the specialized capabilities that we have, the military is very good at moving people. So in a year, unlike this year, but in a year where we would have an inaugural parade, uh, where we might have, have 10,000 civilian groups or 10,000 civilians from all over the country as part of bands and dance teams and clubs and floats and equestrian units and all those different kinds of things that need to come to D.C., need to be organized, need to be told where to go, need to be screened, need to be moved down onto the mall, told when to line up, told when to step off, picked up if, uh, if, if, if Johnny twists his ankle um, and, uh, and, and taken care of, and, um, and then eventually reunited with their buses so that they can go home after having a, a successful experience here. We do those things. We're good at moving people. The, uh, the presidential inaugural committee, the representative of the president-elect, um, normally asks uh, DOD, asks the JTFNCR to serve as that, uh, that management uh, of the parade having elements that represent the Guard and the Reserve and the service academies and the active force and the bands from all the services that will participate in the swearing-in ceremony, will participate um, in the parade, and will, in fact, escort the president from the Capitol back to, uh, back to the White House. So one of the other areas you alluded to it, Mike, uh, is uh, the role that MDW plays in state funerals. And People, yeah, I think people intuitively know that a lot of work goes into it, uh, but I'm not sure that anybody really understands the degree of planning, uh, coordination, and thoughtfulness that has to go into planning a state funeral. If you can, maybe talk about who 
gets a state funeral. And then maybe you can give an example, because uh, I think everybody understands that a former president of the United States uh, gets one, uh, but there are others who do as well. Uh, but talk about maybe the most recent one was for President George Herbert Walker Bush, and maybe talk about you know the role that MDW plays and how long uh, of a planning process it is, because I think a lot of people will really be surprised by the amount of work that goes into it very far in advance of anything happening, uh, God forbid, to, to a, a former president. Probably the thing to, to note up front is that this headquarters has very long-standing relationships with presidents and presidential families. I like to to say one of the things that I will say to a, an incoming commanding general as they change out every two years or so is that we're invested in 20 and 30 and in some cases 40 or longer year relationships with presidential families um, because uh, we're involved in their inauguration. Uh, we're certainly involved in supporting um, them while they're in the White House. Uh, we're involved with them in their post-presidency, very often play a, a large role. And, and, and Rick, um, you and my predecessor worked together in the dedication of the, of the Clinton Presidential Library. Uh, but we've, um, we've uh, on a very rainy day, but yes. we've maintained that relationship and then work with their staff so that we are prepared to support the family um, and act on behalf of the nation um, in the conduct of a state funeral when the time comes. Um, you asked who um, who is authorized a state funeral, um, the sitting president of the United States, former presidents of the United States, the president-elect in the time between the election and inauguration, um, and the sitting president has the authority to designate some other individual to receive a state funeral. Um, that has That has occurred very rarely in our history. There have been instances where we conducted planned, what I'll call planned state funerals for a particular date in honor of each of the, um, each of the unknowns buried in, uh, at the Tomb of the Unknowns in Arlington Cemetery. But the last time that we executed the state funeral for someone who had not been president was uh, General Douglas MacArthur. President Kennedy was very enamored of the, the heroes of his young military service, the, the five stars um, who served during World War II. And during his administration, he wrote each of them and offered them a, um, a state funeral. Uh, they were already authorized a very large military funeral by virtue of their rank, but he offered each of them a state funeral. By that point, uh, General Eisenhower had been President Eisenhower, and so uh, he had another authorization. Most of the rest of that group declined, but General MacArthur accepted that offer. and. Um, at the time of his death, about a year after the Kennedy funeral, President Johnson uh, reaffirmed the offer that had been made by President Kennedy. And then MDW conducted a, a state funeral uh, for General MacArthur from uh, New York City down here to Washington and to his final burying place in, uh, in Norfolk. So you, you talked about, you asked about how kind of the, the process, and um, I'll use two examples if I can. Please. Um, the first document, the first planning document that I have in my files relating to President Carter is dated 1983, not too long after he left the White House. President Carter is still going strong. 
He sure is. Um, I, I can attest to that. <laughs> you know, and and so we are we are still in relationship with that staff and with that family, and we'll be prepared to support him when the time comes. That's a an almost forty year relationship, even in the post presidency time. Um, let alone our, our our service to President Carter while he was in the White House. I'll note that um, kind of in a different a different perspective, and I've talked about this in the um, Gerald R. Ford Centennial Project. So I think it's okay to share here as well. And that is that that these plans are not static. That that families change, uh, the needs of the principals change, the desires of their children changes, where they live changes. And, and so they're, they're very dynamic and people change, uh, people around them change. Uh, certainly the military rotates out and, and there's a constant process of making sure that people who are in new responsibilities understand what those responsibilities are and what they need to do. But there had been a longstanding plan for President Ford and um, we had uh, we had gone a very long time from 1973, in fact, the Johnson funeral, to uh, 2004 uh, when President Reagan died, where we had not had a state funeral that had a Washington D.C. component. We conducted a state funeral uh, for President Nixon, but he chose not to come to Washington. So it had been 31 years since we had done a full state funeral and. Much had changed in the world, much had changed in the media and the way the media covers events like this. And so after the Reagan funeral, the message went out from President Ford's staff in Palm Desert, California, that he thought that what had done been done by the nation to honor President Reagan was wonderful and perfectly appropriate and perfectly appropriate for President Reagan, but that he, President Ford, wanted to develop a plan or modify his plan in a way that spoke to his life of service and particularly to his many, many years in the United States House of Representatives. And so a group of MDW and Secret Service and Ford staff and uh, Richard Norton Smith, who'd been the first director of the of the Ford Library and Ford uh, Museum, and some members of the Ford family were summoned to uh, to Palm Desert, California, for meetings in uh, 2004 and 2005, often with the president and uh, former first lady sitting at the head of the table, and got his guidance about how things would change. And what we executed um, in December of 2006 and January of 2007 at the time of President Ford's passing was very different from what the longstanding plan was, but it was exactly what that family wanted at the time of his passing. So it's, it's a, uh, an interesting and longstanding and dynamic series of relationships, certainly. Boy, I'll say it is. I mean, it's just a, a amazing, and 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 you're right because you know things change so dramatically. You know, particularly when you're talking about uh, anything from a 20, 30, 40 year uh, period. Just so many, you know, uh, everything I would imagine from official pallbearers to who you know speaks, performs, all those things change along the way. Certainly. Talk about this last year. I mean, this has been a year unlike any other. And 
you know, you 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 all, for example, usually play a role in the July Fourth National Mall event. Uh, you know, you had the inaugural. Uh, how did has COVID impacted the events in which MDW has played a role in this past year? The um, <laughs> the short answer is it's impacted the most by canceling many of them. <laughs> um, the uh, many, many of the community relations events that we have traditionally done, the, the things that you think of about military band summer concerts in Washington, D.C., and um, the, the ceremonial pageantry that goes along with some of those entertainments for, for tourists here in D.C., which none of that happened this year. The bands that normally go out on tour and groups like the Army Drill Team and the Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps, none of those groups were able to perform for the public in the way that they traditionally do and carry the Army's story um, and really the story of America's military out across the country. Um, so that's been a huge change for us and a, an opportunity for some, some really gifted people on the, in the leadership and production staffs of, of the bands and those elements to figure out how to have an online presence that was more meaningful than, than they ever have before. Um, and that's been kind of a, a hidden opportunity for growth, if you will. And then we've, we've seen those, that, that reduction, but we've also had to figure out how to conduct necessary ceremonies, um, how to mark those events, how to carry on the, the military ritual of, of a change of command or a change of responsibility in a unit um, the old-fashioned way is to have the entire formation stand on a parade field somewhere in close proximity to each other. The new way might be to have only the flags and the incoming and outgoing commanders in a room and have the, uh, have the members of the unit be able to watch from some series of remote locations. We've had to deal with a lot of those, those challenges. You know, history shows us that in many instances, um, the military has led the way or set an example uh, for American society as a whole. We very early on took on the task, the idea of distancing, took on the idea of 100% mask wear. I'm able to be in my office um, with my mask off only because there's no one else in the room and the door is closed. Um, we're, we're serious about the, uh, about the business of, of safety in the COVID environment. I will tell you that the military culture historically has been that every commander wants to be able to stick his head out the door and shout down the, down the hall, Private Wagner, get in here right now. <laughs> um, that's the way the culture works or the way the culture used to work. And it has been a real learning experience for us as a as an institution for the military and for the Department of Defense as an institution to learn how to work with 25 or 30% occupancy um, in buildings and to embrace um, virtual technology. So th those are the biggest impacts on us. As you talk about trying to do national events, probably the first instance of our trying to accomplish a national event in a COVID environment was the, the funeral of Congressman John Lewis. Yep. And um, you know, the, the tradition there, the, the desire on the part of the Congress was to have him uh, lay in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Normally that means about a thousand people jammed into that small space for the service. I think we had 164 
um, in chairs because uh, as an event planner, you learn that if you put a chair down on a tape mark on the floor, the chair and the person stays there. But if you just have a rope line, people move to the rope line. And so they don't maintain distancing. So figuring out how to do that, figuring out how to allow the public to pay their respects uh, by moving, uh, essentially moving the repose out to the top of the Capitol Rotunda steps so that people could, in a distanced way, come onto the Capitol East Plaza, pay their respects in a line there that remained distant, but they didn't have to come into the building. Um, they didn't have to be in close proximity to each other as they paid their respects. Figuring out how to do that and working with the um, the, the team of, of wonderful folks at the Capitol, Capitol Police, the House and Senate Sergeants at Arms, the architect of the Capitol's office, you know, the ability to... Uh, to stand in a room and say, well, we need to take something that looks an awful lot like the Lincoln catafalque um, and wheel it out to the top of the steps so that people can pay their respects in a different way and have uh, the carpentry shop at the architect's office say, okay, come see us at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. It'll be ready for you. Um, but just the opportunity to work with, with those partnerships uh, to solve problems so that we could do things in a way that the nation could participate and, um, and honor a great leader. We saw those things um, as challenges. As we moved into the inauguration, you know, when you think about the inauguration, you think about um, 200 to 250,000 people on the Capitol grounds, um, many more thousands down the National Mall for the swearing-in ceremony. Um, and looking at a situation where we said, okay, and, and the Joint Congressional Committee made a decision that they were going to have less than 3,000 people in attendance and that they would be distanced. Um, and working through how you do that and changing the protocols for the event, because if people are in the same household, they can sit closer to each other than six feet apart. You can do household seating, and so you can get more people in. But it also means that where in a traditional inauguration you might have introduced the incoming first lady onto the stand separately from the president-elect, um, now you change all the protocol and you introduce people as couples and you seat people as couples. And you deal with the fact that for some people, some that means that they sit closer to the president-elect and the swearing-in ceremony. And for others, it means that they sit farther away um, as you work through those protocols. Um, again, not MDW or JTF NCR's responsibility. Um, we're in support in that case, in support of the Joint Congressional Committee, in support of the Presidential Inaugural Committee. Um, but certainly things that we need to work through as we think about the protocol implications of how you do all that, of how you move those people, um, of how you announce them onto the stage, of how you play honors and fanfares for those who are uh, who are authorized those. Well, I, I tell you, I, I pray that uh, we'll soon be back to not having to worry, at least uh, may, maybe once we uh, get out of uh, uh, 2021, where uh, those events will be, uh, uh, God willing, pandemic free. I, I do want to ask, uh, as we're uh, 
running down on time here. I, I, I know that when even when I've been on the road doing advanced work in the midst of an assignment, there are just moments that stand out. I mean, I, I, I still remember being with the Carters at the Vatican uh, meeting with, with Pope John Paul in 1980. Uh, you know, I, I was doing the advance for Hillary Clinton when she gave her famous speech in Beijing, women's rights, our human rights. Um, uh, you know, when um, President and, and Mrs. Clinton went to Ghana and a million people showed up in Independence Square, uh, there's just moments that just stand out. You remember forever. Do you mind sharing what, if you, as you look back, what are a couple that really just were you, even in the middle of it, you went, wow. <laughs> um, being in the motorcades during the Reagan funeral and seeing the, the turnout, both in Washington, D.C., but especially in Southern California um, to honor President Reagan and people arrayed on highway overpasses and along the side of the road in, in numbers that, that I hadn't seen before. And particularly the last drive coming back from when we landed at Point Magoo Naval Air Station and, and drove back to the library on that, uh, that last afternoon and just the overwhelming outpouring of the American public and, and being able to, uh, to be there and be a part of that. I'll, I'll add then that, you know, I thought, I thought I would never be able to explain that moment to people who hadn't been in that motorcade. But uh, the the pictures, uh, Pete Souza was asked by Mrs. Reagan to be the family photographer, and he had uh, for that funeral, and he had remarkable access. There were at times when he even actually rode in the car with with Mrs. Reagan, um, and his pictures of that funeral, even for somebody who was right there in the middle of it, were like being right there in the middle of it all over again, and truly remarkable experience. Um, I've got one more if you've got time, and it's yeah, also, tell us. Yeah, again, it's a it's a Reagan story, but it's a it was important to Mrs. Reagan that for the procession from the ellipse to the Capitol in Washington, that the caparisoned horse, the riderless horse, have President Reagan's riding boots in empty in the stirrups. That symbolism, that's an important part of the military symbolism. It was important to her that that his boots be used. And his boots were boots he'd worn on the ranch a lot. <laughs> they were brown and scuffed and clearly a treasure. We, the military, who are accustomed to very highly polished black cavalry boots, on comparison to horses, had a little bit of trouble getting our head around this, um, but uh, it was important to her, and so we did it. And on the way back um, on Air Force One, um, it's not Air Force One when a former president's on board, but on, yeah. on that plane, on the way back to California, the uh, the boots were on the plane with us as we took the president back, and um, Mr. Souza had taken them out of the box that they were traveling in and set them up against a bulkhead on Air Force One as we as we flew west to to take this a still life, if you will, of the boots. I didn't know what he was doing. I was in a different part of the aircraft, and he was he got the shot exactly the way he wanted it and took the picture at the exact moment that I 
not knowing what he was doing, walked out from behind the bulkhead into the shot and ruined his picture. <laughs> so Pete, he fussed at me a little bit and made me stand on the on the back side of the bulkhead and make sure that nobody else walked into his picture and he took the pictures that he wanted. When he got back and 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 looked at the all the pictures, the picture that he liked was actually the picture of President Reagan's boots on Air Force One with my feet moving into the background because <laughs> the, the juxtaposition of the motion and the stillness of his boots that, that wouldn't be ridden anymore, wouldn't be worn anymore. And um, I love that. that. It became a picture that they used at, at the, uh, the Reagan Library. I'm fortunate, fortunate to have a print in my home. And it's a reminder to me that we're in support, that we're, we're, it's not the way that we want it. It's the tradition is important, but so is doing things that are meaningful for the family along the way. I love that story. What a great way to wrap it up, Mike. I am so grateful to you for doing this, but for telling that story, because that really sort of says it all. It really does. I, I, I only have one really quick last question. Do you still play the tuba? Once a year for a tradition called Tuba Christmas. <laughs> Christmas well, caroling at I that time it. of year. That's all I that's all that I play. I'm gonna have to come out and visit you in Washington and hear you do that. Because uh, uh the Washington Post uh did quite a, a nice write-up on you uh and um uh mentioned that uh you played that tuba back at Richard Nixon's uh, second inaugural, and I love that story too. So very grateful to you for taking the time to do this today. And uh, I know people have learned a lot about the mission of MBW. So thank you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be with you.